Hello, welcome to Outside World Occultism. I'm Katya, and with me today are Ni. Hello. And JT. Hi, I'm not a clone. <laughs> F and Love are both out today. So today's topic is spell cards and damaku, spell card rules, that type of thing. I guess the very first thing I want to ask everyone is, first, let's talk about what the heck is Damaku anyway. There does seem to be some degree of confusion on this topic. Shout out True. to the Versus Battles <laughs> wiki for saying that Kosuzu could beat up Shiro from Fates Day Night. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's also stuff in the other way, though, that... People seem to assume that all Danmaku are spell cards. I was specifically thinking of the versus wiki example, where it's like all Danmaku are made of light, so Toho characters are faster than the speed of light or whatever. They're just made of magic. It's just energy orbs mostly, or alternately cucumbers, depending on whether you feel like throwing them at people. Yeah, I think pretty much anything can be Danmaku, as long as you, like, throw it at people. <laughs> like, most of the spell cards we see are made out of energy, but a lot of them, too, are made out of things like bugs, rice. <laughs> Shout out to Komachi just throwing coins everywhere. Yeah, just making it rain. And then, like, Reimu throws needles and stuff. When you actually fight her, she has a spell card where she just does basically a super version of her just, like, normal protagonist needle attack. Alternately, her normal protagonist needle attack is just that, and we just don't see it because it would clog up the screen. Yeah, that's that's most likely how it is. So to cover how things are in sort of the abstract sense, Danmaku, the word means bullet curtain. It's a general term that shoot 'em up fans use for games like Toho, which are much more about evasion of large numbers of usually fancily patterned bullets. Rather than just like evading a few small bullets. Yeah. Or in the case of a lot of games, defeating a lot of enemies and tanking your way through with your health bar or whatever. Yeah. It's the one-hit KO type of shmup, but an also a different iteration of the one-hit KO type of shmup. I'd never played shmups aside from Toho when I was younger, and it's only recently that I've started getting super into just the genre as a whole. And so I've been I've been playing a lot of stuff like uh, Dodonpachi and Crimson Clover and a whole bunch of other stuff on Steam mostly, and I didn't realize that there were two schools of thought when it came to bullet hell games. And one is just kind of like about the very careful and precise, like weaving in between bullets and dodging them and stuff. And then the other is kind of more like high energy, like frantic twitch reaction time kind of thing. I think of an example. I guess Dodonpachi is kind of like that. And there's a lot of games that are sort of a hybrid of the two, where you have large scale patterns with random elements to complicate them. I think Mushihime-sama is one of those. That's the one I was thinking of as well, yes. I still need to play that one. It's really hard. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And so in the context of Toho, in lore rather than in gameplay mechanics, Danmaku is any type of magical projectile. And sometimes it exists within the context of the spell card rules, which are a distinct but at this point closely related thing. Yeah, it's generally just... Magical attack that is in, well, a bullet curtain pattern. Yeah. There's plenty of ways that you can do magical attacks without them being in a bullet curtain pattern. I think Zun even mentions that in one of his correspondences in Perfect Cherry Blossom's era. 
For the purposes of this discussion, Don Maku is just in-universe bullet hell. Yeah. Something that's interesting to me is that most print works don't really deal with Don Maku so much. Well, it is kind of hard to draw. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I don't think it went over extremely well when they did deal with it in Silent Sinner. Yeah, like Silent Sinner yeah. and Blue has Damaku fights. Then there's Remus fighting as Kasen at the end of Wild and Horned Hermit. That isn't really that much of a Damaku fight, though. That's true, but Remu does use a spell card, so it counts. And also, <laughs> Kasen is throwing... Um, <laughs> she's, Kasen she's... is throwing things, you're right. I think the Silent Sinner and Blue fights are about as much of a Danmaku battle as the ones at the end of Wild and Horned Hermit, though, because there just isn't actually any pattern whatsoever in them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's difficult to convey in a static medium, like, God knows I'm never going to try writing one. Yeah, definitely. I think also, like, Silent Center and Blue is definitely, like, the only example of somebody, like, explaining the spell card rules to a person that they want to fight and being like, hey, you cool with these rules? Like, I think that that probably does happen in-universe. Yeah, I think that's a regular occurrence, probably. With Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom as the notable exception, because everybody's trying to kill you. Yeah. But that's not under spell card rules, so. I do think it would be funny if in Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom, like, the protagonist were, like, trying to explain the rules to Junko and she just didn't care. Instead of just going straight into the fight, there was just this little sequence where they, like, try to explain the rules and she's, like, not interested and she's not having it. Or she just, like, grasps the concept very poorly and is, like... Oh, just make pretty patterns? Well, here's one that's designed to kill you. Silent Center Blue is also the most notable print work where the effects of Damako are actually sort of represented. Minor damage and that kind of thing. Yeah, it just kind of rips your clothes a little bit. Maybe if you get hit straight on with it, but if you get hit, like, on the skin, it'll just be like, oof, ouch, oof, oof. You know, another thing that comes up kind of frequently when talking about Danmaku is people like, you know, they're like, these are like energy blasts or whatever, they kill you and hit win one hit. And, and that's purely like a gameplay abstraction, I think, because in reality, it'd be more like just like, it wouldn't be any different from like having just like a physical brawl or like getting punched by one. Yeah. It's kind of more like fencing in that case. Like the sort of ritualized Danmaku duel is a lot more similar to fencing. I can definitely agree with that because fencing is definitely more painful than it seems to experience. (laughs) And it's just kind of about having a fancy duel and scoring points on each other. Yeah, and also I feel like more the gameplay abstraction is your opponent having a health bar rather than just you having to hit them to win. Yeah. Because the rules of a Danmaku battle under the spell card rules are if you get hit, you lose. Yeah. I mean, the health bar is just the boss version of your lives meter. It's close scrapes and it's they grazed it or they mm-hmm. avoided it, but there's no real way to model evasion for an enemy effectively you can call it their stamina if you want yeah could you imagine if um, you like tried attacking a toho boss and they just dodged your attack <laughs> sans undertale <laughs> <laughs> well you know with toby fox's um meteoric rise where he's just like meeting all these cool like video game and industry figures including Zen himself you know I wouldn't be surprised to see Sans Undertale in a Toho game (laughs) 
The other thing that I wanted to mention about Damaku is um, the part in Silent Sinner in Blue. I, I'm pretty sure this is specifically a Marisa thing. I doubt this applies to all Damaku, but it would be kind of fun if it did. Where her stars are made of konpeto, actually. <laughs> yeah, like Yurihime like grabs one of Marisa's Damaku out of the air and just like takes a bite out of it, and she goes, "Oh, it's sweet." Yeah, Yurihime in Silent Sinner in Blue also doesn't really obey the Dan. Maku rules, even though she's like, oh yeah, I, I understand these. She just gets hit by Don Maku and doesn't care. Yeah, she's like, oh, I'll play your silly little game. She just death bombs all the time. <laughs> you death bomb by eating your opponent's Don Maku. If you can pull it off, just imagine the sort of state of mind that you end up being where it's just like someone's shooting all these magical bullets at me, and the first thought is, I wonder what they taste like. <laughs> Um, like, Yorihime is living in Dragon Ball while everyone else is in their, you know, 90s road trip movie. Yeah. It's like, I've seen a gif from One Punch Man of, like, the main character, like, biting a sword in half as it's, like, swung at him. That's exactly what it's like. So now that we've sort of covered the what, do we want to go into the hot takes and opinions? Yeah, sounds good. I have a lot of hot takes on the Danmaku from the games, but I'll go into it last because I don't want to spoil everybody else's enthusiasm. <laughs> okay, well, one of the questions I was planning on asking is which Danmaku is your least favorite, so we'll get to that in a minute, but first... What's the spell card or bullet pattern that you really love that stands out to you a lot or like has, you know, some meaning to you? The ones I sort of remember the most because I've spent the most time grinding them are the last words in Imperishable Night. I love spell card practice as a mode. I think it's good for just letting you put in things that absolutely would not be playable in the main gameplay loop and also, you know, refining your practice on the ones in the main game. Uh, Aaron's usually tends to stick with me because I think that was one of the ones that gave me the most trouble. Her whole fight is a bit of a mess. The other one I remember from Perishable Night is at the very end of uh, Aaron's fight where Kaguya jumps in and it's suddenly <laughs> a survival card. That's how it is sometimes. My personal favorite is Yukari's souped up Danmaku barrier last word. Oh yeah, yeah, that one is great. I think it's called Profound Danmaku Barrier something, Phantasm and Shadow. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember the names of the last I, words because they're way too poetic for me. Yeah, I was actually looking at Yukari's spell cards because I wanted to find out the name of the flower-shaped ones from like Impossible Spell Card or something. It was like one of the more Danmaku focused games. I did not actually find the name I because that... I got so distracted by her last word. I think that the one that you're talking about is impossible Danmaku barrier. Her Danmaku barrier spell cards are just good. Yeah, they're really nice. Um, I might be thinking of that one. I think that the not just impossible spell card, but also Aya's two games. Eh, shoot the bullet and double spoiler. The ability to take the spell cards and make them not part of one continuous stage, but stand on their own as they are in of themselves the level really lets Zun, and this is the same thing with spell card practice, they really let him go sort of whole hog on some of these spell cards. Like, I still remember a uh, seamless ceiling of Kinkaku-ji was like... I really remember that from Shoot the Bullet to the point that like when I was in Kyoto, I went to Kinkaku-ji and then I'm like, oh yeah, this was, this was a spell card, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember 
Kaguya spell cards from Shoot the Bullet solely because of the JoJo reference one. Redstone of Aja. I love that. That's one of my favorite Toho cross-references, just because you know that Kaguya got her hands on a copy of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You know she did. I'm sure, like, Lunarian technology can pick up human TV stations. Well, at that point, it would have been the manga, so I think I'll blame Renosuke for that. That's true. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the spell card that you're looking at. Yeah, this is the one actually that I was thinking of. It's my favorite Yukari spell card. There's maybe this should have been an episode about impossible spell card and double spoiler and all that, but I didn't do enough research on those games to talk about them right now. Well, they're not really that interesting besides you take picture of Danmaku. Yeah. Yeah, the gameplay themselves isn't really as... And I think you feel this the most in Violet Detector when they start bringing in the duo spell cards. Oh god. Which on one hand are a really cool design idea, right? Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. that by their nature, they're much more disjointed and... Less personal, too. I have a lot of hot takes about hot spell cards and being personal, but... We'll get there, I think. Yeah, actually, this is a good topic um, to bring up in a minute, because it has to do with my next question. But first, I'd like to say that my favorite spell cards are just like Marisa's. Like, Imperishable Night has some of my favorite... Just It is my favorite game, after all. Imperishable Night has my favorite spell cards overall. Yeah, it's such a beautiful game, and I really love Marisa's spell cards. Specifically, Stardust Reverie and Black Magic Event Horizon, which just have like a billion tiny small little rainbow stars and just like an intricate pattern, and it's just absolutely a treat to look at. The thing about spell cards is that they're very difficult to appreciate sometimes when you're actually playing the game. Because you're trying so hard to not die. (laughs) Um, It's scary! I think it would be a lot easier to appreciate them if we were actually in the world of Gensokyo, because I imagine that they'd come at you a lot slower if they weren't on, you know, your tiny computer screen. Because not many of them move much faster than a human person. Yeah, it's all about kind of hemming you in and limiting your space and just like looking beautiful. Like that is another important aspect of spell cards that we forgot to talk about, which is just like they are supposed to be quote unquote beautiful, which I think means you're not really using any sort of underhanded tactics or anything like that. But also just like, you know, they got to look pretty. You got to have a cool pattern that says something about who you are. And you also have to not be clumsy and dodging things because that's why you lose because... Getting hit and tumbling out of the sky isn't very beautiful, is it? <laughs> no, it's quite disgraceful. So I think my favorites are Marisa's spell cards from Imperishable Night. I do also really like uh, a lot of Reimu's spell cards from like the more Damaku-focused games. Like I like the Gay Baby Jail, <laughs> which is Omikuji rule violation barrier that just kind of fills the screen with rainbow talismans and creates this just like tiny square in the middle that you can actually stand in and dodge bullets that Reimu throws at you. I have to give an honorable mention to uh, Reimu's, like, no solicitation, like, newspaper newspaper solicitation award or something like that. That's just the best. (laughs) It's it's like talisman (laughs) repelling troublesome newspaper salesman or something. And it's just, that's such a good... It's just a giant poster with Reimu's face on it that says, no solicitations, please. And she throws it at Aya and it turns into bullets. So yeah, that one's really good. I also like Evil Ceiling Circle. That's a very nice spell card. 
There's like a million like spell cards in Toho, obviously, and every single game I have new favorites from each game. But those are the ones that are the most iconic to me personally. So a second ago, I talked about Damaku sort of being an expression of who you are, which brings me to my next question, which is, which Danmaku do you think represents a character the best? Is there a particular spell card from a specific character that like really expresses who that character is to you? For me, I think that will always be Blazing Star and its many derivatives. I feel like Sage's flipping the screen all over the place spell card with the spiral Danmaku is definitely a good candidate for that. God, I hate that one. I hate it. I hate it so much. Exactly. That's why it embodies her. Yeah, it's such a perfect Sage's spell card. Blazing Star is... The, that's Marisa's spell card where she like zooms around, right? Yeah, she uses her Hakuro as an afterburner, basically, and just blasts. You know, it's completely not how it's supposed to be played, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> it's a very Marisa. It really is. I think Marisa embodies the spirit of the spell card system best, even if she doesn't embody, like, necessarily the rules themselves the best. Yeah, she's definitely, listen, crashing directly into someone full force is definitely an expression of Marisa. (laughs) It's an expression of beauty, too. Yes. Marisa's like, I don't need bullets to be beautiful. I'm here. Yes, Marisa's bullets are quite beautiful. They are very rainbow, and that is a perfect expression of Marisa's character because she's gay. She's gay. (laughs) Every single Toho character that has rainbow damaku is gay. Every single Toho character is gay. That's true also, but uh, these ones especially. One that I really like is, I can't remember the name of it actually, but one of Miko's spell cards, she does this thing where she like holds up her sword and just like the entire screen is just sort of filled with this shining radiance. Like it's like lasers that are just so dense that basically the whole screen is whited out. The embodiment of her being the prince basically. Yeah, it's so radiant and shining and it's such a simple spell card too. Like there's nothing really special about it, but aside from just the pure visual effect of how impressive it is and I feel like that says a lot about Miko as a person. She is like I'm so cool and awesome and you all know it even if you hate it. She's actually the best Toho character because she said so. Yes and nobody can argue. I do also really like Hakatya's spell where she just like throws moons at you. In the Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom episode we talked a lot about Clompy's throwing moons at you, but... But Hakatia has one too, doesn't she? Yeah, and it's really... The way that it, like, looks is the moon, like, kind of drops down and it streams this, like, comet tail of Danmaku stars behind it. It also has, like, quite a, like, a weighty feel to it because... I don't know. Obviously, it's like, you know, the moon crashing down on you, but the way that it comes down and hits the bottom of the screen has this very impressive feeling of weight to it that, I don't know, sort of gives a lot of credence to the fact that Hikatia is the strongest Toho canonically. I'm so proud that she's the strongest Toho canonically. Me too. While you were being a prep, she studied the Danmaku. <laughs> How about non-spells? Are there any that stick out to you? I really love Yuyuko's non-spells in Perfect Cherry Blossom. It's knife time. (laughs) Other than PC-98, which of course is quote-unquote all non-spells, I remember, I think it was some of Shizuha's that were like using like a falling leaf type motion that I I vaguely recall. (laughs) Um, I don't remember if it was in Shoot the Bullet or Double Spoiler 
which is the case that wouldn't count. I have a lot of trouble recalling non-spells because most of the time when I see them, I'm playing the game and then I just think I'm trying and not to die. I think there are actually some non-spells in Double Spoiler, so they would count. Yeah. I like a lot of the... Satono and Mai have a lot of... Beautiful non-spells? Yeah, their patterns are very... Just generally well put together. Yeah, I really love the colors and the patterns of their spells. I do very much hate playing against them, though. Oh, yeah, they're definitely <laughs> awful to fight. But, like, the... I feel like of all the duo bosses, they're definitely the most, you know, integrated. Which makes sense, given their characters and things. But they're clearly, you know, you're fighting both of them. And sometimes you see more of one or the other. But it's all very closely intertwined. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Hidden Star and Four Seasons, I mainly brought this question up because... I really like Okina's non-spells from her boss fight, which are just, they're not really like that amazing, like all kunai. Yeah, they're just like a spiral of kunai, but they're like in the color of, of like whatever season is appropriate, and they all have a different sort of intensity and pattern depending on the season, and it kind of blew me away when I first experienced it. Like, I also am the resident Hidden Star and Four Seasons lover. Specifically the summer one, which is like the blue kunai that resemble rain, I really liked just because of the force with which they were fired just like really set to mind like a very sudden summer rain shower. Like, I don't know, just like that much effort being put into like non-spells was something that stood out to me. Speaking of Maya and Satono, what's your least favorite spell card to play against? And for me, that would be <laughs> that'd be Maya and Satono because they're just awful. They're insanely hard. And I'm specifically thinking of the mid-boss fight that's just Satono. Like, I have never, not even once, beaten that without bombing or losing a life. I just don't know how to dodge it. I've tried so many times and I just can't get the hang of the pattern. My least favorite non-spells are probably, definitely, Lyrica's Wiggly Laser ones, because at least Sho's curvy lasers are predictable. Sorry, Merlin's curvy lasers are just like, we're gonna go all over the place and we hate you, actually. <laughs> And also, they're almost the same color as the background. God. Yeah, ignoring anything that blends into the background and anything that has buggy hitboxes, I'd probably have to say either Mayan Satono's like last or second last card. I can't remember which one immediately. Or just Clown Pieces, where she briefly decides to be Quick Band Stage from her Mega Man, <laughs> where it's her, like, star, the stripes one. Oh, God. <laughs> I usually like being boxed in, sort of, but having to go, like... You mean the gay baby jail one? Yeah, have to move so vertically in that, which is not normally how I play Toho. Yeah, I mean, it is good to move vertically in Toho, because if you just lock yourself to two dimensions, then there's a lot you can't avoid, but that one is just such a nightmare to deal with. There's a difference between moving vertically and needing to move vertically, though. Exactly. That's true. I move vertically on my terms. A lot of spell cards, sure, it's harder to stay in one place vertically, but you can do it. Yeah, that's very true. Especially because a lot of them are just kind of, like, even though you're dodging, you're still kind of hitting the boss the whole time. The thing, when I, when I say I don't move vertically, what I mean more is if I'm using vertical movement, it's for evasion, right? There's no yeah. other yeah. reason. Whereas on Cloud Pieces card, it's forcing you to be moving vertically at a very set pace the whole time while you're also needing to adjust that vertical movement to dodge things. And I think the most frustrating thing 
that, that specific spell card. I can't remember the name of it. I, we all know which one it is, though. And the most frustrating thing about it is that not only do you have to move vertically to dodge it, but, like... You also have to move horizontally. Well, yes, but specifically, like, the, the thing that killed me a million times was the fact that the bars, like, kind of spawn in as you're moving vertically, and half the time they will just be directly on top of you, and they're, yeah. they're already yeah. moving as they spawn in. And they're way too close together, too. Yeah. Even on, like, easy mode. If you're not just in the exact correct spot and already moving down as the bar spawns in and starts moving down, you will just instantly die. And that that, that was very frustrating and not fun to play against. Shout out to Quick Man Stage. <laughs> the one that I wanted to mention that was already brought up, which is Sage's card where she just flips the screen. And that one I just hate. It messes with me so badly to have like all my directions reversed and stuff. To contrast with that, I really like Shinya Maru's trickery, where she just like makes her hitbox huge. Big girl hours. Yes. I think that was a way more interesting and fun take on messing with the game mechanics than flipping the screen. Even though Sage's screen flipping was god-awful, it still wasn't as bad as all of Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. It definitely wasn't intended to be as difficult as that game. So I guess to contrast with spell cards that are kind of very frustrating to play against and don't really feel that great to finally like grind through and beat, what's a spell card that makes you just kind of feel like a 200 IQ galactic brain genius when you finally unlock the trick to it and manage to clear it? The one that'll always stick with me, and it's an early game spell card that's not actually that tough to do, it was the first Toho game that came out when I was a Toho fan, so it sort of stuck with me. Parsi's spell card with the big snake of bullets that follows you around. Oh, yeah. Like, for me, that will always be the defining moment of, oh, I get it. <laughs> Even when I'm not just cheesing it with uh, Reimu Yukari. Yeah. I think the one specifically that really evoked that feeling in me was Narumi's Bullet Golem, which stymied me for a really long time. I was very frustrated, but then the way that I deal with it is, I don't know if this is like, you know, the correct strategy or whatever, but it's what works for me. So as the Bullet Golem like descends upon you and tracks you, like it fires out a bunch of bullets in every direction. Like, it gets closer and closer to you, so there's less space between the bullets. So what you want to do is just dash all the way to the other side of the screen before it actually gets down to you, because there's still gaps between the bullets. And when I realized that and managed to clear that spell card without taking a single hit, like I, I lost my mind. It's definitely the one that sticks out to me the most, and you're like, oh my god. And then I guess the other one for me is Dora Mies. The one where she like spawns like a yellow ring around you. Ochre delusion, because I hated doing that one too. I had such a hard time. Yeah, and then you, once you realize that you, you just kind of go in a little spiral. It's just a spiral. Yeah, and it just becomes completely trivial to do, and it's like a beautiful spell card. It's a very funny moment when you're like, oh my god, I'm so dumb. Like, Would you like to know how many tries I had on that on my first point device run? Would you like to know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 76. Oh my god. <laughs> well, that's less than me, so... What? Did she turn into a 0 out of 99 plus? Somewhere in the 80s. Oh my god. I was wondering if it was going to cap the digits, and then I barely didn't. 
<laughs> and then once you figure it out, it's like, well, I feel dumb now. Big of big of brain, dumb of ass. <laughs> I guess that one kind of makes you feel more like an idiot than a 200 IQ genius, but once you actually know it, it is very trivial. Take it from me, the 200 IQ shit, that just means that you can be even dumber in new and exciting ways. There's no intelligent, it's just a greater capacity to be stupid. (laughs) The faster your brain goes, the faster you're an idiot. The int build is like trying to figure out why am I dying to this spellcard a million times, and then wisdom is you just go in a little spiral. I'm trying to think of any other spell cards like that that really stood out to me, but I I think those are the two specific examples that I had in mind. Do you have anything, me? Probably Okina's fireballs from the bottom of the screen spell card in her final boss fight. I'm not very good with bottom of the screen Danmaku, and oh, me neither. it is very interesting having to dodge from the bottom and the top at the same time. Yeah. And it is very slow. I tend to like slower Danmaku because I do not have very good reflexes, as we all know. <laughs> so it was just like, oh, I get an opportunity to practice my dodging skills, even though I'm dying to this spell 90,000 times, because... It actually is balanced for me, and also it's just very relaxing to look at, if you're not playing it, that is. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I do think that spell card practice needs to be just like a regular feature of Toho games. Please. I'm, I'm very happy that Honestly. it's in, it is in Wily Beast and Weakest Creature, right? It's been in all the recent Toho games, but we also need to have non-spell practice, please. (laughs) Honestly? I mean, I guess that's... uh, I was going to say that's kind of stage practice, but that's only for, like, mid-bosses, really. And also you have to go through the whole stage. Yeah, that's true. Non-spell practice would be nice as well. Like, if you could just practice boss fights in their entirety, that would be pretty... That would be pretty good. I don't want to have to go through the whole stage to practice you. Just make the game the boss fights. Like, but not to downplay the importance of the stage from like a design and like mood perspective, but also like if I die on a stage and it's not like my first run through it, I feel like an idiot, which is to say <laughs> I feel like an idiot a lot because I am not good at shoot 'em ups but like the bosses are the part where I die in the double digits okay. or triple digits if yeah. you're my Satono or clown piece. We've all been there where you are playing stage one and you just die and you hit the reset button (laughs) immediately. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if Toho would benefit from being the kind of game that had a point device mode but was not balanced around it. Like if it was balanced around being classic mode but it had point device in there. I personally do like point device mode as like a learning tool and a way to experience the game. The problem is that you can't quite soft lock, but it can feel like you've soft locked. That's true. I think the most frustrating thing to me about point device mode was that you lose power every time. It should just leave you in the state that you were when you reset. If you die once, then you're back down to 3.99, and that makes you a whole ton weaker. Just have it subtract score, so there's still an incentive not to die for the top-level players. Mm-hmm. But I am not good at the video game. My most logged hours are in things like Crusader Kings and Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> Menu simulators. Were it not for my affection for the setting and the characters, Toho is far beyond my meager levels of gamer juice. (laughs) 
I have no reflexes. Toho is not the game that for me. I can even play reflexes games like I can play precision platformers, but the Toho has a predictive element to it, which my brain will struggle against as much as it can. I don't Mm. mind the prediction. I just mind that, well, I have to also predict how much I'm going to move because sometimes I tap the arrow key and I move a tiny bit and sometimes I tap the arrow key and I get shot across the screen 500 miles. There's a lot of variables you have to keep in mind and I can manage about two. Yeah, I definitely think that there's ways to improve on point device mode while still keeping the punishment aspect of it. Like you mentioned, subtracting score, which only like true elite pro gamer Toho heads will care about. You can't save point device replays either, can you? I don't think so. So there's no bragging aspect. It just lets you beat the game and see the good ending. Yeah, I do think that a punishment in a game for failing a skill check does not necessarily have to be... Making the game harder? It doesn't necessarily have to like feel bad for the player in the way that losing just a chunk of power in a Toho game does. Yeah. I would love more accessibility options in Toho in general, but it's just made by one guy, so... Yeah. Yeah, if losing at the game makes the game harder to play, then the people who are good at the game are not going to feel that at all. And then it's the people who are trying to learn the game who come at this cliff and mostly get washed back down. Yeah, and the thing about point device mode is that it's not for the elite gamers who play on Lunatic or whatever. Like, it's for people who want to make it through the game with, like, the help of checkpoints and stuff. And I think that the pushback against point device mode wasn't actually because it was point device mode. It was because Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom was balanced around it instead of actually being balanced like a normal Toho game. Yeah, and that definitely contributes to its ridiculous difficulty. Because Toho is already on higher difficulties, kind of like those you-die-instantly games that Zune was inspired by. (laughs) I have a really hot take, but I feel like Zune has gotten so good at Danmaku that he's kind of lost the scope of what a reasonable challenge is nowadays. And I think part of that, too, is just the nature of the shoot-'em-up community versus the gaming at large. Like, shoot-'em-ups, Toho is not a hard shoot-'em-up, but it is a hard video game. Yeah, and it also is slightly less fair as a video game than it used to be. That's also my hot take. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree with that. Like, the early Windows... Games are not easy games. They are extremely difficult, but they are just generally more fair because they don't rely on surprising you as much with Danmaku as the later Windows games. Yeah, I do agree that there is definitely like a degree of difficulty creep in terms of Toho games, and I wonder if that is due to Zun just like being so good at it. It's partially him being better, but it's also the nature of him wanting to experiment with the mechanics. And if you're experimenting mechanically, then you have to be designing from an assumption of familiarity with the base mechanics. That's true. And also, I feel like the new gimmicks in the games are presumed to reduce the difficulty by a large amount, which sometimes they do, yes, but it makes the Danmaku when you don't have those new gimmicks available to be rather less fun. 
Like, you can complete Perfect Cherry Blossom with breaking your borders immediately and never using them whatsoever to tank hits, whereas I feel like in Wily Beast and Weakest Creature, you are presumed to have either your roars up and running or to have them up and running so they can take a hit for you. You can cancel them right away if you want to, but it makes the game like significantly harder. Yeah. You can cancel both them and the supernatural border mechanic instantly, but the supernatural border mechanic isn't like relied on by the game to make it beatable. This actually brings me very neatly into the final question that I had about what kind of Danmaku would you like to see from the series in the future? Like what kind of spell cards, what kind of trends in terms of difficulty or mechanics or that kind of thing? I'm going to seem pretty casual to shoot-em-up fans because I don't remember the name of the game off the top of my head. But there's a, a shmup series where you're, you're switching between two modes and it lets you avoid, like, white bullets and black bullets by matching up the right. And so something like that, whether it's high and low or even, you know, focused, unfocused, something that adds an element of reaction other than lateral movement, something like that I think would be an interesting design space for Toho to work in because... I think you mean, you're talking about Ikaruga, right? That's it, yes. I knew it was Ika something. I was trying so hard to remember. Like, I knew exactly the game you were talking about, but I just couldn't remember the name. (laughs) I know, that's why I was like, I'm going to get roasted for this because it is a big... But it's like, that's... In terms of, like, design space... I think, and this is especially something that I feel like was in, like, the double cards of Violet Detector and things like that. We're kind of pushing the design space limits of the, you know, avoiding the cool geometric pattern. Yeah. Which, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm all for a cool pattern. If Zoom, like, starts throwing, like, like Sokolar Taylor tiles, whatever else, like, there's plenty of cool patterns that Zun could still come up with, but, like, I don't feel like that that changes the how you approach them from, like, a gameplay perspective. Even if it's, like, he'll always be able to make pretty patterns and they'll always look different, but at some point it all comes down to the same how do I steer through this with my... Mm -hmm. Whereas things like Impossible Spell Card and Double Spoiler in them could have a lot more room to do things like most of the cards in Impossible Spell Card because... Dodging isn't the only reaction you have. You have to sort of plan your way through. Yeah, it would really be nice to have, like, gimmicks in the games that don't actually work with a point-and-shooty mechanic. Yeah, something that gives you... So I guess it's not so much Danmaku as much as give the player a new tool set and then make the Danmaku to the usual, you know, standard, but incorporating the, the elements available in this moveset. Having interesting mechanics that fundamentally change the way you play the game. Yeah, it's not like Zune can't do this. There's impossible spell card. Most stage five bosses have some unusual mechanic that in changes how the interface works. Unfortunately, they've lost a little bit of that in the recent games. Yeah. Yeah, the recent games have focused more on things like the, you know, animal spirits in Wily Beast or the the seasons, which is a... They're basically options. Yeah, they're basically options. They're an extra offensive power for the player, but they don't... 
they act as a way to escape the core gameplay loop. They don't change it. Yeah. Yeah. You need to incorporate these gimmicks into the core gameplay loop rather than just giving you an option to avoid it only gives you an incentive to make the spell cards more difficult rather than to make them more interesting. Yeah, exactly. It becomes, I need to make this spell card, you know, an incentive for them to use Otter Shield or an incentive for them to use their Season Charge. And I do think that Zun has been good recently about changing the player's options for each game, but they don't change how you play. And so I don't think, like, what type of Danmaku, I know Zun will always put together good, I'm very confident in his ability to do that, but I think the thing that I would like to see is Danmaku that makes me play the game differently. Yeah, yeah. actually, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, and I think that stuff that rewards you for playing in a certain way is definitely the way to go forth with making mechanics like this. Like, the example that I was thinking of would be, like, some sort of, like, magic circle system. This is directly inspired by Black Mage from Final Fantasy XIV's gameplay, um, <laughs> which is like you just place a magic circle down on the ground in a specific place and your like damage increases and your casting speed increases and so on while you remain within the confines of the circle. And I think that a system like that that just kind of rewards you for setting up a specific zone on the field and remaining within its confines is an interesting way to reward players for, like, a lot of spell cards can be handled in a lot of different ways. You know, that includes just, like, dodging all over the place or, like, scrambling around and not really focusing your fire on the boss so much. And I think that would be an interesting way to encourage a player to sort of plant their feet in one place and sort of navigate within the confines of a very small area and smaller even than the area afforded to them by the actual spell card. And actually, I think I'm going to come up with a, I guess, a corollary to that that I think would be an interesting mechanic. The best example I can think of for it is the boost areas in F-Zero which, you know, slowly repair you, and they're, they're a specific portion of the track that you can go on it and get benefits from. But, like, imagine if you had a spell card that it produces bullets and things too, but it also produces patterns of the weakness or wherever, where if you follow this path, you can, you know, build up grays or build up power or increase damage to the boss from these locations or something to incentivize moving in a general route, even if that's... A more difficult? Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying, I'll incentivize in this place that I choose and then you... That does provide an interesting puzzle of where do I set this down if I want the most points, if I want the best play... Does this limit me too much or does this help me get through this better? And this is the converse of that. It's like, can I play normally or do I go where the game is funneling me and get high risk, high reward in that sense? Yeah, because there's no real reward for going into riskier areas in spell cards besides score. And I feel like Zoom might overestimate how many people play for score. <laughs> And yeah. I, yeah, I think that's the shmup community versus the Toho community again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's making his games for people who, by and large, don't actually like to play the games as they are. I mean, I don't think I'd go that far. I think it's more that... Well, I mean, like, he's making his games for shmup players, 
Like, the games themselves, not the lore around them. Yeah. But he doesn't really have the grasp that most of his community is not, in fact, shmup players. They're not shmup players as much as they are Toho players. Because there's a lot of people I know who... I feel like Toho is, like, the number one way that people get into shmups that I know of. Yeah, because it's generally easy comparatively, even if it has some issues. Yeah, I do think that Zen is aware on some level that obviously the Toa community is like such a massive thing that like not all of them are there for the games themselves and that's why all the print works exist and all of that. The way he makes Toho is that he makes games that he wants to play. So I think that like more than anything else, he is just making games that he thinks would be cool and interesting to play. So I think that definitely there is room for him to come up with interesting variations on the gameplay that sort of encourage you to make choices without being like needlessly punishing. Yeah, and I think that's the... If I was there, you know, whispering my sweet nothings into Zun's ear, I would probably ask him, like, what does this... And I'm a systems theory person, so uh, a lot of people have hot opinions about, about that. But it's just like, what does this new system do? Because a lot of the new Toho things, like the Beast Spirits, the Seasons, even like going all the way back to the UFOs or the Spring Collection in Perfect Cherry Blossom... When viewed as, you know, singular mechanics, they're all distinct and complex interactions with the game. The problem is that what they do is give the player a thing to hoard and save for the one time they need it and then use it and then restart the process again. Regardless of specifically what that thing is and the individual methods of getting it. Yeah, I do like that the game, like you mentioned that it encourages the player to just kind of like hoard a thing in a lot of situations, but I do like that the way his bombs work is that they kind of encourage you to use them more often because you die, you just get three bombs back no matter what, so if... They basically count as extra lives. Yeah, if you die with any bombs left, then you've kind of misused your bombs. Applying that sort of system of thought to other mechanics would be good, I think. Yeah. I do find an issue that with the fact that the death bomb timer has slowly been decreasing over the past few years. Yeah, I really like the idea of death bombing, and I think it's a very good mechanic. I do miss the Toho characters being differentiated more besides their shot types, like Reimu having the smaller hitbox and stuff in regards to comparison to her slower movement. I just miss a lot of the stuff from all Toho games, even though it's not really necessarily better it just gives it a little more character yeah i definitely agree and i think Um, having this comes back to my for me at least to having something beyond bomb things and lateral movement things to distinguish them like some extra options would just help a lot and i think that hidden star is sort of a good example of this in both directions because you get a second shot type of sorts which a lot of shmups do which on one hand makes individual shot types less distinct but still they're all associated with a character and it gives you more play value out of doing different combinations yeah Mm -hmm. 
I really was glad to see the new shot types in Hidden Star. Unfortunately, it was kind of overshadowed by the season mini bomb mechanic. Yeah, I do like the new shot types in Hidden Star for seasons, but I, I was not a fan of the fact that like you had to burn them to you know use the game's gimmick. Like maybe even and and this is a cursed thought because I know that this is a controversial thing in the shmup community and sort of, <laughs> uh, but like some kind of like equipment system where you can like impossible style card had sort of a very extreme example some way of customizing or even changing throughout the game the options you have available to you in old castlevania games there's all sorts of different weapons you can pick up to get this benefit for this much time and things like that incentivize more variety not only between but within a playthrough yeah, kind of like how I genuinely cannot think of a specific example right now, but like a lot of shmups have power-ups that you pick up that sort of change your shot type to like, yeah, you yeah. know, like a spread shot or missiles or whatever. Yeah, besides like the power mechanic. Yeah. Or even like have it be a power tree or something. When you hit 4.0 power, you can choose one or the other shot type. Yeah. And then you can intentionally get hit to change it if you really want to. Yeah, exactly. Something like that, or even like multiple layers. Or I don't know. I'm not a shmup designer. I my design space is in like RPGs and stuff, which is like way off the other end of the you know systems opacity spectrum from how shmups are. And I do think actually that Toho's could be a bit more forward with how some of this information is presented to the player definitely in terms of how much damage does this shot type do even for stuff like sane's exploding frogs and things sometimes the hitboxes are a little different than what you think and having it be somehow a little clearer just to, to ease the burden of the prediction right mm-hmm. i hate playing embodiment of scarlet devil because there's no boss indicator at the edges of the screen, right? Yeah, Yeah, the hitbox you can pretty easily tell by where Reimu's bow is on her back, but the boss indicator, you're not looking up there 99.9% of the time. And I think that was a good change, but give some, like... Because from, like, a Watsonian perspective, the player character should know, here's where my shots are going, and at what ranges what things happen. So give us, like, spots where we see Sané's frogs splitting, or yeah, something like that. I also definitely miss Reimu having a shot type that is always homing. Because, like, the point of her is to be the easier character to pick up to walk you into the game. Yeah. And the fact that, oh, sorry, uh, unfortunately we have no focused homing shots for you in this game is a little bit... Yeah, I'm really glad that Wily Beast has a homing shot for Reimu. It doesn't have a focused homing shot. The eagle. No, the eagle is not homing when focused. It's just only homing when roaring. Oh, yeah, no, you're right, yeah. That is the one that I play the most, though, Eagle Reimu, just because I do appreciate having the homing shot so much. There are many situations in that game, though, where having a homing shot is not great, though. I think that's one of the things in Zun's design that sticks out to me the most is he knows how to design around things like the homing shot without feeling like that it's deliberately screwing you over, but also like, I need to not be doing this right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we've basically exhausted the topic of, like, Damaku and what we want to see from Toho. So I think this would be a good time to go to the mailbag. You mentioning RPGs earlier is a perfect segue to that because our first question from Anonymous, who says, Is there any genre of game besides bullet hell shooter and fighting game that you think Toho would translate well to? I do think that the traditional light four-player RPG really does fit well with Toho. It's a pity that the best example that I have is Toho Mother, because the story of that game is not very good, except for the fact that it has Yuka and Mima in it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I would go with the classical... I mean, considering just like we end up with the characters collaborating on incidents in the stories they tell to each other. Oh yeah, yeah, the the broader structure. I think if I were doing Toho as an RPG, I'd do much more of a, like, sort of a modern multi-route thing that has some interweaving. So, like, there's Marisa's route, and she recruits allies X, Y, and Z, that's interweaved with, like, Reimu's route, and maybe you play one chapter of one in one of the other, and they'll interact with each other and your decisions in one will affect the other and you know that sort of thing because that gives to me like the strength of toho in an rpg context and i'd sort of like to actually work on this if i you know could art and head well i do have time but i'm trying to work on my own rpg projects once i'm (laughs) out of test hell but like as a as a sort of general notion is that it gives you this very large world that you can build things in and that you can work in and so that's sort of a hybrid visual novel Eastern RPG type situation with, I think, multiple parties and sort of interconnected routes is what I think the ideal sort of RPG side Toho that I'd like to see is. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely approaching this question from like a character focused perspective. RPGs are very like character driven games. Yeah. And like. I feel like the main Toho games are actually pretty character driven, even though the setting is the main focus of the series as a whole. Definitely, I would very much agree with that. And I believe we talked uh, on some episode about how much Sun does to convey a character and who they are and all of that through simple gameplay mechanics. And I think the same is very much possible in the lens of like an RPG. But to move things out of sort of the very heavily character-driven and into a more of a gameplay, the other two genres that, well, one of them is sort of getting a bit more popular now, in part because it's getting popular in the indie scene again in general, uh, and actually some exist for Toho, but not quite as I do them, is uh, Metroidvania plays very well in my eyes with Toho. Yeah, it does. Because, again, it's it lets you work in the expansive setting and traveling around to figure things out and figure out where you can go. There's plenty of characters with varied arsenals of abilities that you can gate behind whatever, like, even whether that's like a Metroidvania of Marisa wandering around and... You know, I've got this idea, can you help me out with this? Or Mamizo shape-shifting into various people and stealing their tricks. Or (laughs) the Taoists as like a a multi-character puzzle sort of thing. You know, Sega goes through a wall and, you know, Fudo has her um, variety of abilities and throwing plates (laughs) at things and setting things on fire. And, you know, of course, Miko is lasers and you've got these groups of people with lots of diverse abilities you could use in something like that and so the the metroidvania puzzle platformer not just because it's one of my favorite genres of of video game in general 
And even like the classic Vania, like a classic Vania starring Reimu would be dope. It fits the plot structure too. I feel like oddly enough, the Toho Vania series of fan games, or well, their Komajo Densetsu, they're excellent games, but they're actually not that good at translating Toho into a Metroidvania. They're much more of a conversion of Castlevania into Toho. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, I love me some Castlevania. Yeah, they're excellent games. I have played Komaju Densetsu 2 approximately 100 times. They're Toho Castlevania rather than, than Castlevania Toho. Yeah. I think actually if I were adapting a Toho game into like a classic Vania, I would go with Subterranean Animism. Oh, that's a great idea. Just because you have a variety of characters involved, you have a cool natural boss progression, to fit sort of uh, the underground instead of Dracula's castle. Subterranean animism specifically would be a really great candidate for a Metroidvania just because of the sort of setting where you like descend underground and you just explore this increasingly like interesting and varied world down there. Like you start out, you know, in the caves or whatever and you start coming across like villages down in hell and then you find this giant mansion and you cap it all off with exploring like a nuclear reactor down at the very depths of hell. I don't know if I would do it for like a a modern metroidvania. The game I think I would do for that would be Hidden Star and Four Seasons because that's much more of a going around everywhere to figure out what's going on sort of thing. And it has a fast travel mechanic in the doors. Yeah, exactly. And Subterranean Animism, I think, fits the classic Vania style of it's linear, but it has this, you know, changing environments and increasing progression and stuff like that. Uh, And this is just me being a Castlevania fan now. Uh, Watch (laughs) the Netflix show, by the way. Shout out to that. Uh, When are we getting more Castlevania reps in Smash? Give us someone who isn't a Belmont. And the last one, before I sort of, because I've sort of been dominating this question, I think, because I love game design as as like a systems thing, I want to do two sort of briefer shout outs. I would love to see Toho as like a Zelda style game, because you can convert like a Toho style boss fight to a Zelda style boss fight pretty handily, right? It's still about evasion and pattern comprehension and... I feel like Gensokyo is very Breath of the Wild-esque. That's true. Again, I think Impossible Spell Card is sort of my, if I were adapting an existing Toho game into this genre, uh, that or just double dealing character um, because of its sort of focus on tools. You could do some cool thematic stuff there. For like an original plot, you can do a lot of stuff. Alice building different dolls to a task and going and finding the pieces for it. Or Nitori is sort of a natural character to have a wild and crazy arsenal of Zelda gear. She's also a gremlin like Link. Yeah, and probably smashes people's pots to take their money. (laughs) And then, of course, and this is something that I personally have worked on with people on and off as interest is waxed and waned in doing it because it's a lot of sort of busy work and conceptual stuff. Uh, It's not quite a game, but I would love a dedicated Toho powered by the apocalypse hack. I don't know what that is. It's a narrativist heavy tabletop game. Oh, it's a tabletop. It's essentially like your your characters are in whichever setting and you have genre appropriate actions you can take that are tied to to roles. It's pretty open-ended and group story driven, which I think is the ideal sort of thing for running a Toho game. Mm-hmm. Because it's not detailed and, you know, sophisticated combat systems like D&D, super high power nonsense like Exalted or any of that. There's not much bookkeeping. It's it's a very story and character-driven system, and I think it would fit 
Toho well. So if anyone is interested in working on that, hit me up because my my other plans on making an APOC hack sort of fell through. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's about all of my hot Toho game idea takes. So the one that I have, I feel probably always uh, carry a flame for is... Um, so I don't know how familiar people are with these games, but they were a huge part of my own childhood growing up. Um, the Mega Man Battle Network series. Oh, yeah. Which has like, you know, it combines this sort of like RPG overworld gameplay where you run around and talk to characters. But then the combat itself, like it takes place on this like grid of squares and there's your side and the enemy's side. And it's sort of just about dodging a bunch of attacks and firing back. And it's just, it's very like quick paced gameplay, I guess. And I think that would translate like extremely well to a Toho flavor. If I remember correctly, there was actually a project in the works that was attempting to do this, but it got like DMCA'd or something by Capcom, maybe. Capcom shut down. It was like a with Shanghai instead of Mega Man.exe, um, which and it looked really cool. And then and that's sort of the problem with cloning specific games, because like the Mega Man Battle Network sort of style of play is pretty closely tied to Mega Man Battle Network. You can't sort yeah. of... You can't really say you're making a more broader genre. You sort of... You can't describe it to people and have them get it without referencing Mega Man Battle Network. And they're like, oh! Yeah, that's certainly true, but I don't think that sort of style has to be necessarily proprietary. Like, Oh, I mean, it's it's absolutely a dick move on com... Uh, I did not... Not Comcast, Capcom. They're the same part. company. They have the same black soul of evil. All companies have the same evil soul. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's like, absolutely, it should have been allowed to go forward and all that. It's It's just one of those sort of... If you're making a fan game and... Shout out to you if you are, you're doing great work, especially in the English language community. Like, God, I wish I could spend time on, on Toho fan games instead of flailing at my own stuff. But, like, if it's close enough to a high-profile IP held by an existing company, y'all don't need to tell people about it till it's done. I know you want to. Trust me and ask anyone who's been in the original content work of any server I've ever been in, I get what it's like to want to spam your stuff to a bunch of people, and with fan games, some of them are even interested, but y'all don't need to tell people about that. You can just wait. You can just show small gameplay clips. You can be as vague as you want and not show that the inspiration is, you know, another giant conglomerate game. Yeah. Don't give them the rope to hang you with. At the end of the day, more than your cool hype videos and things, we want to see and play your games. And so I know that it's super hard to work on things when you feel like nobody cares about what you're doing and there's no enthusiasm, but this is a podcast guarantee. We care about what you're doing enough to tell you to please don't tell us about it in detail and get sued by Nintendo or Capcom or Konami or whoever else. You gotta sneak it past the company first. Tohovania is a great example of not telling people about it till it's finished and that allowing it to become a good game because I would bet you money that had they shown it off before it was finished, Konami would have gotten wind of it. Probably, almost certainly. So going back to my, like, the actual gameplay idea, I really think that the style of Battle Network would fit Toho, like, extremely well because it's already about dodging flashy attacks. They are telegraphed and it's just kind of a reaction thing and you um, sort of learn the patterns and so on. So that's very Toho of 
bit. But also, like, your own attacks, it would be very easy to translate, like, the Mega Buster attack to just, like, your standard fire. And then, like, battle chips are literally basically spell cards. There would be no difference. And so I think that flavor of Toho game would be amazing. And it's I think that's the Toho fan game that I want to play more than anything else. It would be lovely. Not least of all because of my great affection for the Battle Network series. The other kind of game that I think I w- that I would really love to see done in a Toho style would be a like super like rapid fire like very like fast paced twin stick shooter. Mm-hmm. Oh with, yeah, that could be like like a descent sort of thing. There's bullets coming at you from all sides, and you're just kind of trying to weave in between them, and you're also firing in all directions, and you move like, very quickly, and you spam a billion bullets, and you yourself would be able to do the thing where you spin your uh, like aiming stick around and just like generate a cloud of damaku in all directions. Actually, I've got another sort of related notion, and something that you could almost combine with that. That's sort of the player getting to show off the flashy attacks. And another thing that I think has been attempted at least, but I've never seen it done well. I would love a Toho Muso. Mm-hmm. What's that? Uh, Dynasty Warriors. Oh, I've never played one, but I'm familiar with them. The scale doesn't quite match the Toho because it's normally big armies and stuff. But like, imagine like Fairy Wars, the Muso. <laughs> Also, I think that a rhythm game would really be neat for Toho. Oh my god, yes, absolutely. Like, with just, like, Toho songs. Like, make it about if you hit the right number of notes, you get to dodge the Danmaku. That would be so good. Or just, like, just like tapping the notes is dodging Danmaku. Like, you have, like, a little visual yeah. thing where, like... It... Toho of the Necrodancer. Yeah. You know how, like, Bondori or whatever will have the girls in the background playing music, and if you mess up a note, then they make a little, like, frustrated yeah. face or whatever? That exactly, but you're just dodging bullets, and if you miss a note, then you get hit, and you take some damage or whatever. Yeah, it would be really good with one of those energy meter systems. Yeah, this actually, there is a rhythm game very much like this. I know there's a Toho Rhythm Heaven. The game I'm thinking of is called Ongeki. It's funny because Toho doesn't fit in Rhythm Heaven's formula at all, even though I absolutely love the series dearly. Yeah, so Ongeki actually has Toho models in it, but the gameplay of that one is like the track itself is like your battle arena basically, and your your character travels down the track, and you hitting the notes causes attacks to fly out of you and hit the enemy. It's a really cool rhythm game. I really want to play it. I'm pretty sure it's only in Japanese arcades, which is sad, but that's just how it is sometimes in the rhythm game scene. Is there anything else we want to say on that topic? One last sort of thought, and to completely separate us from the usual style of Toho sort of things, I would love to see a less mainline incident type thing, more sort of forbidden scrollery, a yokai's up to trouble, but... In the style of an Ace Attorney game. Oh my god, yes. A visual novel would be fantastic. Especially like a mystery one like that. Like specifically like Ace Attorney where it's the... Because like the character interaction elements of that which get so over the top and are so sort of structurally done. I think, you know, you can't do spell card rules that way. But like Marisa and Remu arguing different approaches to an incident or something and then some poor yokai they're interrogating trapped in the middle i think just fits perfectly into the that specific style of framework i think that would fit wild and horned hermit more than uh forbidden scrollery honestly absolutely i think you're you're right now that you say that like the tone of wild and horned hermit i think i would really love that yeah 
So speaking of Rayma and Raisa, we do have one more question. This one doesn't actually have anything to do with anything that we've talked about on the show so far. So I don't know if we should save it or should we just talk about it? No, we should go with it right now. This question comes from Madeline Online, who says, Sorry if this is too much of a ship bias question. Don't ever apologize for that. There's no such thing on this show. Yeah, we can literally send 600 questions exclusively about, like, Yuyuko and Sagume, and we will answer them. Yes. So, sorry if this is too much of a ship bias question, but what are your thoughts on Marisa moving in with Reimu? Because of her duties, I couldn't see Reimu moving, but do you think they would ever choose to live together, or do you think that they need that distance? And I love this question. This is a fantastic question because this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I don't think that they would move in together, ever. I think that the two of them, they thrive so much in their independence. And I think that they interact on their own mutual terms. And I think if they're in the same place constantly, they like to be able to come and go and sort of each have their own sort of element of they came to see me, I came to see you on purpose sort of thing going on. Yeah, like they already spend so much of their time together. Marisa basically comes over most days. They're very, very comfortable with the way that their relationship is. So I don't think they would ever move in. But I also think that specifically they wouldn't ever move in because Reimu would refuse to live in Marisa's filthy house. And Marisa would refuse to live in some place where she couldn't find mushrooms every single day of her life. Yes. I think Marisa's too attached to the Forest of Magic, and also Reimu would not let her keep her stuff in the shrine. First of all, there's not enough room. Second of all, it's like full to the brim of Kegare. Yeah. Third of all... (laughs) Just shove it all in the basement with Miko. (laughs) (laughs) And Clown Peace. Don't forget Clown Peace. I still can't believe that Reimu has a clown basement. Are you saying- Isn't that every basement? I mean, my parents (laughs) certainly do. That's where I am every day of the week when I'm not in space. Oh my god. (laughs) I always forget that Clown Peace is just living under Reimu's house, even though I brought it up in the Walke episode. So I don't think that Reimu would let Marisa keep her stuff at the shrine. And so they both have their own, like, spaces- That they are, like, they both need alone time to some degree, I think. The fact that they both have their own houses where they can have that alone time is very important to their relationship. So I don't, I don't, I don't really see either of them moving in together. And I think they're going to be, like, little old ladies still coming over, visiting each other. And people are going to be like, so when are you settling down? And they've been settled down for a very long time, but this is just how it is for them. That's just how it is sometimes. It's not like Gensokyo is especially big anyway. Yeah, Yeah, it's a pretty reasonable commute. There's still plenty of space to spare for people who are living elsewhere. So I don't think there's a huge incentive for people to be living together in general. Yeah, I think that their fluffy domesticity, as much as I love fluffy domesticity, I think it's limited to spending the night and the morning afterwards and so on. There's plenty of characters that can also get the fluffy domesticity beat too yeah and it's not as if they are lacking for fluffy domesticity because even in the manga like there's times when like reimu is cooking for a festival or whatever that wild and horn hermit chapter yeah exactly wild and horn hermit chapter 37 shout out to that 
But Marisa will just come by with groceries or whatever, and they'll, like, make food together. I think they have a very, like, natural dynamic that would honestly just be, like, sort of disrupted by having them move in with each other. Yeah. They already spend so much time together that they may as well live together. They just don't, and that's fine. I feel like it's hard to see Remu and Marisa in any pairing really, like, moving in with people. I think they're really attached to their own places. Remu in particular is... The shrine doesn't have enough room to fit two people in it, and Marisa... Nobody in Gensokyo would want to live in that house besides her. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's not a very fancy shrine, is it? No, it's barely bigger than, like, a roadside shrine. Yeah. You said something earlier about, like, neither Remu or Marisa would be... Their own houses are very important to them. And I think that is something to consider as well. Like their own houses like represent something to them that is like sort of deeply rooted in their identities. Like obviously Raymond's the shrine maiden. The shrine is super important to her because of that. It's a part of her daily life in a way that like Maurice's house never could be. And for Marisa as well, like, this is, like, a house in the woods that she probably has lived in since she ran away from home. And it's probably to her, like, a really big symbol of, like, her own independence and self-reliance. And I'm sure it probably has a lot of memories with Mima and stuff, assuming that Mima ties into that house somehow. Their houses are very important to who they are as people, and they, I think neither of them would want to sort of relinquish that. Uh, so is that it for that? Yeah, I think that's it. This was a really good episode, I think. I guess I'll take us out then. So thank you for listening to Asset World Occultism. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but... Isn't next week our next Unsealing Club? Oh, I guess it might be. Oh, it is. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Next time will be another episode of the Unsealing Club where we sort of finish up our or continue our discussion from the last time. Thanks for listening. This has been Asset World Occultism. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.